0: But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison, there had committed, who had committed murder, murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Christy. Let's please uh, take a second and pray and ask that God would help us as we look at these verses just for a couple of minutes together this morning. Please pray with me. Our Father, we ask now that you would come and be at work among us as we hear this old story which some of us are familiar with and some of us might not have heard ever or in many many years lord we ask that you would help us to understand what it means what it meant both then when it was written and what it means for us now we pray that you would work in each of our hearts a faith that is vital and that is active and that is real a faith in this man jesus who claims to be god and who indeed Christians confessed to be God, and who came and humbled himself and suffered so that we might receive new life, so that me, we could be forgiven, so that we could have hope. God, help us to rejoice in the truth of the gospel this morning as we continue to look together at the life of Jesus and how his life changes everything about our lives when we trust in him. And we ask that you would do this by your grace, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we've been studying this gospel, the Gospel of Mark, for a number of months now. And as we're nearing the end here, one thing that I want us to keep in mind, and it's hard not to have in mind, is the depth of suffering that Jesus of Nazareth underwent the last few days of his life. We've seen that the last couple of weeks, and we see it again here this morning. And just at the very beginning, I want us to just pause and think for a minute about how amazing it is that. You know, of all religions in the world, Christianity, as far as I know, is the only one who claims that their God has undergone such brutal suffering and torment, who who claims that someone who is all-powerful, someone who made the universe, someone who can call a legion of angels with the snap of his fingers and wipe out every one of us, someone like that underwent such dreadful things, both from his friends and from his enemies, It's really a remarkable thing for us to reflect on the suffering of Jesus Christ and as we reflect on it to understand why he suffered and the purpose of his suffering and how that relates to us. We've been looking at that for the last couple of weeks and today we come to Jesus' trial before this man named Pontius Pilate the famous Apostles Creed, which we use as a confession of faith from time to time at Christ Church, is an ancient confession or statement of what Christianity is all about. And one of the clauses in that creed says that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Last week, we saw that Jesus at the end of Mark 14 was sentenced to death by the Jewish leaders, by this group called the Sanhedrin and by the high priest. And the cross awaits him in just a few. Few hours and yet, despite the Jewish religious authority sentencing Jesus to death, because at that time the Jewish state was under the control of the Roman Empire, they have to get Roman okay. They have to get the okay of Pilate before they can kill Jesus. And so that's what we see happening here in our story today. In verse 1, we read that the chief priests held a consultation with the whole council. They stayed up all night trying to figure out a way to get Jesus to be condemned, not just by their religious council, but by the state, by Pilate himself. And so they drag him away to Pilate, bound in chains, and let him face Pilate and the Roman authorities. Um, We see that they've consulted about how to get Jesus in trouble. And so they don't bring a charge to Pilate that Jesus is a blasphemer, which was their problem with Jesus. Uh, That would have made no sense to a Roman person who's not Jewish. And so what they do is they call him the king of the Jews. Did you notice that? That phrase is used a couple of times. It's the first time in Mark we've seen Jesus called that. And the reason they call him a king is because to a Roman 2,000 years ago, the language of kingship is treasonous language. That's revolutionary language. That's language that when someone uses it of himself is going to get him into trouble. And that's exactly what happens to Jesus. The king of anything in Rome in those days was a title that was seen as problematic. So they want to present Jesus as threatening, not just to the Jewish religious folks, but to the Romans as well. So Jesus goes before Pontius Pilate. And no one would ever remember Who Pontius Pilate is, except for probably a few obscure historians, if not for his role here in the condemnation and death of Jesus Christ. Pilate was what we call a prefect, which is a pretty high ranking government official in the Roman Empire in Palestine from 26 to 36 AD. And by the way, he would not have liked living in Palestine. I mean, the guy's from Rome, and he ends up sort of in this backwater province running things. And it's well known to other historians that Pilate is also an anti-Semitic person. He's an all-around, you know, as Seinfeld says, an all-around jerk store. Right? No one likes Pilate. Pilate's pretty much a reprehensible figure, and he's stuck over here in this backwater Palestinian community. It's sort of like, you know, if you have a a position of authority in New York City or Washington, D.C., and you get transferred to, say, the mayorship of Hobbs, New Mexico, or some place like that in the middle of nowhere. No offense to you, New Mexicans. I always use New Mexico when I want to talk about, you know, a place that's really, really bad and no one would ever want to be. So our New Mexicans. It's Texas's westernmost county. What do you want me to do? So that's kind of like what it would have been like for Pilate. Um, so Pilate's not a very happy guy. He's very inflexible. He's relentless, and he's got a lot of self-will. So, of course, we see things are not going to turn out well for Jesus. And so Jesus goes before Pilate. And what we see here in this interaction are two themes that Mark has Really been writing about for many chapters now. He's been weaving together in his story almost from the beginning. And I want to sum up the whole point this morning like this, by talking about these two big themes. Jesus, the King is rejected by men and Jesus, the King suffers for men. Those are the two points. Okay. Jesus, the King is rejected by men. And Jesus, the king, suffers for men. So let's look at those two in order, okay? First, I want to show you in this story how Jesus, the king, is rejected by men. Now, we've already seen, if you've been with us, that he's been left by his friends. The guys that have been with him for three years have abandoned him. Peter denied that he knew Jesus at all three times in a row. And now in this part of the story, not only is he rejected by his friends, but he's also rejected by his enemies, and it's worth thinking from sort of a, a 30,000 foot view, a big picture view for a minute, again, about how remarkable this is. Think about it. The one who governs the universe finds himself weak and helpless here. The one who is the judge of everyone is judged unjustly by men here. The one who, the one who, binds the stars into the heavens and binds the waters into the ocean and separates dry land from the seas is bound himself by leather straps here. The one who deserves all human praise and glory and honor and allegiance, that person is spit on and beaten and mocked What's happening here is it's really, it's truly terrible. No matter where you are in your faith journey, I hope that you can at least on the narrative level, appreciate the tragedy of Jesus's circumstance here. The living God, the second person of the Trinity, God with us is submitting to this humiliating and agonizing treatment at the hands of men that owe him their allegiance and their entire existences for that matter. The king is being rejected. That's the first big idea. And really, I want to show you three groups real quick that reject Jesus here, just in these verses. First, it's very obvious that the religious leaders reject Jesus. That's the first group. This has been occurring really all through the gospel. Way back in chapter 3 of Mark, verse 6, we read for the first time that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the chief priests sought to put him to death. They're opposed to Jesus. They've been trying to destroy Jesus for some time. They've rejected his teaching. They've rejected his obvious miracles. They've rejected his compassion towards the weak and the poor. They've rejected everything about him. This entire mockery of a trial is their doing. Listen, it's worth thinking about this fact for a minute by way of application. I hope that you can understand that one of the chief ways that people can reject the real Jesus is through religion. You know that one of the chief ways that people can actually reject Jesus is by seeming to be very close to Jesus. That's always been true and it always will be true. It's this sort of purely external formalized religion that we see here in the Pharisees and the scribes. It's that type of religion that is always inimical. It's always antagonistic to the way of Jesus and to the message of the kingdom of God. So it's worth asking yourself for a second this morning, are you rejecting Jesus through your religiosity? Are you rejecting Jesus by pretending to sort of have it all together and be nice and upstanding and moral? You know, how do you know if that's something that you're doing or have done in the past? Well, there's a couple of clear signs. Anytime we sense in ourselves a feeling of superiority to another people group or another tribe, or anytime when we make decisions to, quote, you know, keep the rules based on fear or guilt, or anytime that we have a sense in ourselves of deep anger and bitterness, defining our relationships, all of those are signs that we are actually running away from Jesus by trying to appear very put together and religious. Anytime you're steeped in in the comparison game, where you're always measuring yourself as either better or worse than other people, that's a sign that you're rejecting the message of Jesus for outward religiosity. Anytime we obey, listen, anytime we obey the outward commands of God and do something, you know, that people would say is good, but we're doing it for our own benefit, ultimately, for our own reputation. Anytime we're engaged in that sort of behavior or practice, we're really rejecting the message of Jesus for this fake, hypocritical, outward religiosity. The great English preacher in the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, tells a story that illustrates this point really well. It's a fake story, it's not real, but he puts this picture forth. Imagine it with me. Imagine that there's a king who rules his kingdom really well and justly and graciously, and he has one of his subjects, a farmer, come to him, and he enters into the palace courts and comes and stands before the throne of the king, and he has this big, beautiful carrot. Big, beautiful carrot. He says, Your Majesty, I have spent my life farming in your fields, and I have grown some crops that were good and some crops that were bad, but this is the greatest, most delicious carrot that I have ever grown in my life, and I want to present it to you, my liege as a sign of my allegiance to you, as a sign of my gratitude for your just and good rule over my life. And the king says, wow, that is an amazing gift. Thank you so much. And he receives the carrot from this farmer. And he says, thank you for giving me this carrot. I am going to reward you for your generosity towards me by giving you the next 100-acre field in my kingdom right next to your own. And as as the king's court is hearing the king give this man a field based on, you know, getting a carrot, one of the chief leaders in the king's court who runs the horses, he's in charge of the stables, thinks to himself, wow, if that guy gets a whole extra field for giving the king a carrot, then what could I get for showing generosity to the king? And so the next day, He comes into the court with an amazing stallion, you know, the best horse in all of his stable. And he says, my king, my liege, I present to you this incredible, you know, shadow facts from the Lord of the Rings. This is Gandalf's horse, right? 90% of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, A great horse, a fast horse, the most beautiful horse in all the kingdom. And the king responds to this man and says, thank you. And the horse goes off into the king's stables and the man's horse sort of left there thinking, Hey buddy, I, the guy that gave you the carrot, the big carrot that maybe you chopped up for your salad last night. He got a hundred acres. What am I going to get? And the king says to the man, this, that man gave me the carrot, but you gave yourself the horse. And that's exactly what outward religion is all about. It's appearing to be moral, It's appearing to have it together. It's appearing to do these things that are going to, you think, please, God. But you're really only doing it for yourself. You're doing it so that you might look better. You're doing it so that you can justify your own sense of personal righteousness. That is actually one of the fundamental ways that humans throughout history have rejected Jesus. The religious leaders reject him. We see, secondly, that Pilate very clearly rejects him. Look back in the story. He rejects him for different reasons than the the religious leaders do. He knows, you'll see there that Mark tells us, he knows that Jesus is innocent of these trumped-up charges. Look in verse 10. He perceived that it was out of envy, and he's right, that the chief priests are delivering Jesus over. So Pilate knows what's going on. However, we tell in the story that he is too cowardly and too afraid of his own reputation or standing being diminished to do the right thing here. I mean, look at verse 15, Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd. You see that? Wishing to satisfy the crowd, released instead of Jesus, the innocent one, this guilty revolutionary and murderer named Barabbas. So Pilate asks Jesus these questions. He tries to politic his way out of doing what the Jewish people want him to do. But at the end of the day, Pilate is too afraid. He's too cowardly. To acquit Jesus, and he sentences Jesus to die, maybe we 're more similar to Pilate than we think. Do you care more Do you care more about what people think than about giving your life over to King Jesus? Sometimes it takes great courage to trust in jesus 's message and follow him very often. if you are a christian you 're going to face rejection and even perhaps ridicule yet That is a poor reason for rejecting Jesus. Listen, if God accepts you in Jesus, then the ridicule of other people is a small price to pay. But we don't see that clearly very often. We're often more concerned with satisfying the crowd than satisfying God, just like Pilate is here. Do you shy away from doing what you know is right because of fear of man? Do you keep quiet about your faith when you have opportunities to speak up? This is Pilate-like behavior. And another way we reject the king. The religious authorities reject Jesus. Pilate rejects Jesus. We see thirdly that the crowd rejects Jesus. And this has to be particularly painful for Jesus, by the way. You know, at least some of these people, presumably, make up the same crowd that just a few days earlier had hailed him as the king when he entered into Jerusalem and waved olive branches as he passed by on the donkey. These people have praised him in the past. And in fact, throughout all of Mark's gospel, the crowd, the crowd has been presented as people that marvel at Jesus. They're astonished at his teaching. They're amazed at the compassion and love that he has for people. They're in awe of Jesus's power and authority over nature and over evil spirits and over sickness and even over death. But now that same crowd, the same crowd that says hail, The Messiah has come. Now screams, crucify him. Release for us Barabbas. Crucify him. Crucify him. They demand that Pilate release this murderer instead of Jesus. You see, the crowd is fickle, right? They go hot and cold depending on if the circumstances are going to suit them. Maybe the crowd wants... Immediate gratification and they see that Jesus isn't going to give it, give it to them Maybe they want a political revolution and they see that Jesus didn't come for that either Maybe some of them just you know wanted to see a show Like high school kids that egg people on to get in a fight And they want to see Jesus get in trouble here But the bottom line is the crowd proves here that they don't truly care about Jesus They can be easily swayed The chief priest verse 11 stir the crowd up to be antagonistic towards Jesus Isn't it possible? Isn't it possible for you and me sometimes to be swayed by others like the crowds when it comes to trusting in and believing Jesus? That might be a position that you find yourself in right now. You might be close to really going all in with Jesus, you know. You might like a lot of things about him. You might feel the call of the Holy Spirit on your life to trust in him and to, to go all out for Jesus. And yet, and yet there are certain relationships. There are certain groups of people that always keep you from jumping in. Maybe you don't want to disappoint them or you just don't want to deal with the fallout that will inevitably come. If you know, if you become a Christian or if you become more committed to the cause of Christ, maybe you're still set on pleasing these people and being accepted. Listen, Listen, I can understand that. That's a very normal response. I've been in those situations myself. And yet it is another way that humans tend to reject Jesus as king. You know, just to get a little personal for a minute. I remember when I was a young student in high school, 9th, 10th, 11th grade. Some of you students might have similar experiences as I did. I had my set of friends that were school friends. And then I had my church friends, right? Right. And I very regularly struggled with being one person with my school friends and one person with my church friends, and they were two very different Lukes, right? Uh, with my church friends, I was, you know, kind of like a religious guy. I was, uh, went to Bible studies and said the right things and was involved in my youth group. But with my, with my school friends, I was very, very, very different because I desperately wanted to be accepted by them. So I played down my church life, right? And that's something I had to come to terms with, to be honest with you, later on in my life. It's something I had to repent of when I was really beginning to, to you know, own Christianity as my own faith. And, and the Spirit might be speaking to us here and telling us that that sort of fickle attitude toward Jesus is yet another way of, rebe- of rejecting him. As Gimli the dwarf says in The Lord of the Rings, Faithless is he who says farewell when the road darkens. Perhaps that's where you stand with Jesus. The bottom line is, the world naturally rejects Jesus, the king. Mark shows us all throughout his gospel, and it's highlighted and emphasized here too. Today, you and I still live in a Christ-rejecting world. That's really the only way to actually make sense of the world. If you go back out into the world this, this afternoon or this week, you will see confirmed what the scriptures teach here. People aren't just neutral towards Jesus. People are actually antagonistic towards Jesus. We all naturally reject him. Humans have a determined rejection of God's son. And yet that's not the whole story. You see, Jesus knows that about each one of us. Jesus knows that about the world. And he still came. He still loves He still suffered for us. And so secondly, briefly, I want to show you that not only is Jesus the king rejected by men, but Jesus the king is suffering here for men. He's being rejected by men, but the beauty of the story and the beauty of the good news of Christianity is that in that very rejection, in the suffering he endures, it is a part of God's sovereign plan to save the world. That's the amazing thing. In Jesus's rejection, we find salvation. That's clear in the language of the story here. I want you to notice how Mark uses a very important verb, an important word, two times to sort of book in this story. In verse 1 and in verse 15, he says that Jesus was delivered up. You see that there in verse one, it's the Jewish religious folks that deliver him over to Pilate. And in verse 15, it's Pilate that delivers him over to the cross to be crucified. That verb is used all the time in the New Testament. And one of the things Mark is subtly informing us of here is that it's not finally at the end of the day, the Jewish authorities or the Roman authorities who deliver Jesus over to be crucified. At the end of the day, it's God, the Father himself, who delivers Jesus over to be crucified. Peter, the apostle, six weeks after these events take place, preaches a sermon on the day of Pentecost. It's recorded in Acts chapter 2. And at one point in that sermon, Peter says this. It was the, uh, here's what he says. Jesus delivered up, same word, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, of God you people crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men and 700 years before Jesus' life isaiah the prophet prophesied that this was going to happen to jesus in isaiah 53 he writes it was the will of the lord the will of god to crush jesus he has put him to grief he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors what does all that mean here's what it means God is the one who gave over his beloved son to agony and rejection and pain and death. God let this happen. God was orchestrating this. And God did this out of love for the world. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus God allowed Jesus to experience rejection and death so that you and me might experience acceptance and life. God gave Jesus, you see, to be the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world so that we can be forgiven for all the ways in which we reject him, whether it be like the religious people or like Pilate or like the crowds. You see, that's the good news of the gospel. The gospel tells us that Jesus experienced all the pain and brokenness and evil and torment and grief and shame and guilt that our sin has brought into the world. And he did all of this so that you and me might have life and hope and pardon. Jesus willingly gave himself up to rejection and death so that we will never be rejected, so that we can overcome death. The gospel is that Jesus takes our place and gets what we deserve, and we take his place and get what he deserves. Just like Barabbas, you see. Barabbas is guilty, and yet gets off. Jesus is innocent, and yet is condemned. We find ourselves all this morning, by nature, from the day we're born in the same place, by nature, rejectors of God, by nature, enemies, the Bible says of God. And yet the good news is that rather than condemning us and punishing us as his enemies, God sent Jesus, his son, and punished him instead. So that you get the perfection, the righteousness, the blessedness, the joy that Jesus deserved. And Jesus gets the guilt and the shame and the curse that you deserve. So there's always a call. Anytime we read about the story of Jesus, there's a call. It's not just a story. It's one of the ways God speaks to us. And he's speaking to us now. He's calling everyone in this room today to believe these things to be true to believe, to see that we, like the people, reject Jesus in a variety of ways if left to ourselves. We might run away and hide from God through our external religion. We might reject him because we're too concerned with satisfying other people like Pilate. We might have treated him like the fickle crowds do here, loving him one minute and making fun of him the next. That is who we are, and that is what we do. But it is exactly for people like us, rejecters of God, that Jesus came. He suffered the consequences of what we do in rejecting him. He takes all of the badness and pain of our rejection and destroys it with all of its ramifications at the cross. He gives himself up, you see, so that we might have life. Paul sums it up in, His letter to the Romans, chapter 5, he writes this. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for who? For the ungodly, for rejecters of God. One will scarcely die, he writes, for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we see in the story here. It's the message of the gospel. It's what Jesus, through his Holy Spirit, is beckoning you right now to believe. There's an old story. It was originally a, a novel about an experience in World War II and later was made into a movie. The movie was called The Bridge on the River Kwai. Some of you might be familiar with that novel or with the movie. It's about prisoners in a, during World War II in a Japanese internment camp somewhere in the Far East, and it's a terrible, terrible place where these prisoners are abused and mistreated and tormented, these POWs. And at one point in the story, uh, in this terrible, terrible prison, the prisoners are being taken out day by day to do all of this backbreaking manual labor to work and to toil. And as they're leaving one evening, the Japanese guards count up the shovels that these prisoners have been using all day to dig trenches or do whatever they were doing. And there's a shovel missing. There's one less shovel than there is prisoner. And a guard begins, you know, shouting. This is very powerfully presented in the movie. He begins shouting, you know, hysterically, threatening, that unless uh, unless the POW, unless the prisoner that stole this shovel admits what he did, every single one of these prisoners is going to be killed right there on the spot. And the guards are going nuts. They're hysterical. They're in a rage and in a frenzy. They're accusing these prisoners of having stolen one of the shovels and hiding them. I mean, it's, it's a mess. And eventually, one of the soldiers steps forward and raises his hand and says, I took one of the shovels. And the guards, the Japanese guards, immediately come and begin to beat him over the head with the butts of their rifles, and they beat him to death. But all the other prisoners are allowed to go free see that that guard gave himself he gave himself he gave his life to rescue the other prisoners that's you know that's exactly what jesus is wanting to communicate here it's what he's done for you he died to spare you he died in your place he died as your substitute that's our most basic confession this morning jesus died for me. He bore the suffering that my sins deserve and that my guilt deserves. And if we trust in that message, we will receive pardon now and forever. It's the gospel. Believe it. Let's pray.